All right, Boker Tov. We uh, we begin this uh, the Shabbos Parshas Voira, and with it the continuation of the storyline, the narrative that we began last week. Of course, with which we're all very familiar. Uh, forms the basis of Pesach, the Haggadah, the whole storyline of our um, the dramatic fashion in which we leave Mitzrayim. Moshe is appointed to be the uh, the leader, Hashem's ambassador. He hesitates. He's reluctant. But Akash Baruch Hu, of course, uh, ultimately, I would say, pressures him into doing so. Page 318, we'll give an overview of the Parsha, and then we'll uh, begin to dissect the Psukim we want to look at today, as we do every week. The overview of the Parsha, of course, is that the, the story continues last week, left off, that the uh, Jewish people do not accept Moshe's leadership. They complain to Moshe and to Aaron. Moshe complains to Hashem, and uh, they're nervous about the future, what's going to be. So the beginning of this morning's, of this week's Parsha, Hashem reassures Moshe, he tells him, don't worry, I appeared, uh, I'm appearing before you, just like I did to your forefathers, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And he seeks to reassure Moshe to build his confidence. He makes him the promises which represent the Dalad Lashonas of Geula, the four different synonyms of redemption, which correspond, of course, with the four cups of wine that we drink at the Seder, one of the reasons given for why we have four cups of wine. Of course, there's a fifth expression. I'm sure you all remember from Shabbos HaGadol, maybe five years ago, where we discussed at length the history of the coast of Eliyahu, or the origins of Elijah's cup at the Pesach Seder. Of course, I'm joking, because I don't remember, so if you remember, that would be borderline miraculous. But you'll remember that one of the reasons which was given is that since there seems to be a fifth synonym, a fifth language, maybe the cup of Eliyahu corresponds with that fifth. What are the four languages of Geula that are represented in the Pesukim at the beginning of our Parsha? You have Hashem promising Moshe, after he hears the cries of the Jewish people, says, don't worry, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to save you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to take you. Those are the four. There's a fifth one, which is, I'm going to bring you into the land. And of course, do you see the fifth language as the fulfillment of the first four? In other words, is there a purpose, an accomplishment, an achievement in the redemption if we never ultimately come into Israel? Or is coming into Israel and forming our national homeland, is that the realization? Is that the ultimate destiny and fulfillment of the first four? So possibly five different languages, five different ways of Hashem promising Moshe. Again, you have Moshe once again displaying great reluctance and hesitancy. That's what we're going to study today together. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu again tells him, relax, don't worry. And here the Torah gives a little bit of an interlude. It provides the lineage. This Moshe and Aaron, who are going to be God's mouthpiece to Paro, are going to be the catalyst for redemption. Who are they? Where do they come from? What's their lineage? What's their heritage? And so the Torah gives us not only theirs, but a broader perspective, which we'll see. And then the Torah repeats where it left off, where Moshe again hesitates, Hashem says, don't worry. And with that, the redemption begins. With that, the redemption begins. They go down, and they told Paro, let my people go, and we're all familiar. Paro says, no, 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 I will not let them go. And the first plague comes. The first plague is Dam. first plague is the river turns into blood. Of course, we're familiar. Does Moshe perform the first plague? No. No, why not? Because he was saved by the river, the Nile. It would be totally and grossly inappropriate. How could Moshe strike that which saved him? It would be kafoy tov, it would be a breach of hakarasatov. It would lack gratitude. And of course you can't help but ask the obvious question. It would lack gratitude. Gratitude to river? Gratitude to water? How could it lack gratitude? So this is not our topic for today. But the answer tells you everything there is to know about hakarasatov, the Jewish perspective of appreciation and of gratitude. So I'll let you think about that. But the hint is, 
clearly, if the Torah endorses gratitude towards an inanimate object, for whom are we obligated to give, for whose benefit is the gratitude? Clearly it's not, or not only the recipient, but it is the giver of gratitude who stands to gain from giving gratitude. So it doesn't matter that the river is an inanimate object. It doesn't matter that the river is a body of water. It doesn't matter that the river has no feelings. Right? It's similar to the idea, Friday night, we cover the challah when we make kiddush. And we've all learned in nursery school, if we merited to go to a Jewish nursery school, why do we cover challah when we make the kiddush? Not to embarrass it. Embarrass not to embarrass the challah. No. How could you embarrass the challah? Have you ever seen a challah blush? It's not a pretty sight. <laughs> it's it's going to be embarrassing. You know, the great Rav Yisrael Salanter, some of the great fathers of the Muslim movement, would bemoan the fact that we're all so universally careful and scrupulous to cover the challah, to save it from embarrassment. But how often do we come to the Shabbos table and uh, the husband yells at the wife, why isn't it set properly? The soup is too cold. Where's my kiddush cup? The wife yells at the husband, what are you yawning so exhausted? They look at the, yell at the kids, you left your stuff in the middle of the floor. You embarrass somebody. And if you saw Salanta pointed out, here we are all so universally careful not to embarrass the challah and we're embarrassing other people. Right? Or I think the story, I think the original story was that the husband, right? What, the story of the sentence around, the husband yells at the wife, where's the challah cover? I can't make kiddush. There's guests there. She's blushing. She's embarrassed. And the Shosh Salatah said, in your, in your rush and effort to protect the embarrassment of the challah, you're going to embarrass your wife, embarrass a human being. So what does that mean? The challah is subject to embarrassment? Challah gets humiliated? What's that whole idea that you're going to embarrass the challah? Of course, that has nothing to do with the challah. The concept is that really in the hierarchy of the orders of brachos, hamotzi comes before hagafen. Really you should be washing before you, washing and eating bread before you make hagafen and drinking wine according to the protocols, the hierarchy of the order that we make blessings. So if you're going to skip over the preferred blessing and you're going to skip over what should be the... the uh, priority, the bread, and go to the wine. It's going to be, so to say, embarrassing. So we don't do that. We cover the challah so that it is as if it's not in front of us. And therefore, when we make the blessing on the wine, we're not choosing between the two. It's like the challah's not there. We're just choosing the wine. That's the reason. But why do we do that? Because we're trying to cultivate and refine a sensitivity within us. It has nothing to do with challah. It is a... Our rabbis introduced it because they understand that we're trying to cultivate and refine a sensitivity within us. Nothing to do with challah. That's what Rabbi Yisrael Salanta's point was. <laughs> Here you're going to go through the motions of covering the challah, but not achieve the sensitivity to make sure not to embarrass other human beings, other people. So the same is true with the Nile. Moshe doesn't at the Nile, not because the Nile is deserving of gratitude, it's an inanimate object. It can't receive gratitude. But rather so that Moshe cultivates and refines within himself. It would be a breach of his own integrity to display ingratitude. So again, there's a lot more that can be said about it, but we don't have time. So that's the first plague, the plague of blood. All the water changed wherever it was for the Egyptians, but not for the Jews. Then we have the second plague, the plague of frogs, Tzfardeya. Now the second plague is also strange, because Rashi tells us, how did Tzfardeya multiply? These frogs that began, depending on the season here in South Florida, sometimes you can feel that we are suffering from a plague of frogs or lizards or iguanas, although the cold settled that a few years ago. But how did the frogs begin in Egypt? It was only a few frogs. And you know what happened, the Medjish says? When you tried to hit the frog to capture it, to kill it, you know what happened? It multiplied. It was like gremlins. Anyone remember the movie Gremlins? Every time you tried to hit the frog, it would multiply. So the Birchas Peretz, a sefer, um, written 
um, by the stipler gone, Kanievsky asks, I don't understand. So how did it ever get to the point of being a plague? First time you saw a frog, and when you hit it, the result was you had two frogs or three frogs. Why would you ever hit them again? How did you get from the point of a few frogs to frogs here, frogs there, frogs jumping everywhere? How did you get to that point? If you saw that the result of capturing or hitting it or killing it was it multiplied, then just hands off and you won't have a problem. So the Birchas Paris, the stipler going has a magnificent insight into the, into the character trait of anger. Anger causes irrational behavior, he says. Anger results in self-destructive behavior. So you hit the frog because you're so angry. What is this frog doing? Infiltrating my space, violating my space. I don't want a frog in my house. You try to hit it. And then you see the frog multiply. So you don't say like a rational person, well, multiplied, I would be foolish to hit it again. What happens? You get filled with more rage and more anger. So you go hit them again. And until you've all of a sudden been so self-destructive and you say, you say like, okay, come on, you kidding me? But we don't see that every single day. That people get filled with rage and anger and they damage their own relationships. And they damage their own livelihood. And they damage their own decision-making and judgment. And they damage their own health. They make poor decisions. That's what he says is going on with the second plague. The third plague then we have is the plague of Kinim, of lice. The fourth plague is the plague of Arov. You have wild animals. And then the fifth plague, Dever. Sixth plague is boils. Seventh plague is hail. And that's the end of the Parsha. So the beginning of the redemption, you have all these plagues. We, we may or may not have time to discuss this question, but why did God need all of this pomp and circumstance? Could, couldn't God just fold His arms and blink and have the Jewish people out of Egypt? Why did He have to go through pomp and circumstance, sound and light show? Not once, not twice, not eight times, ten times. A huge ten plagues. Why did, why did Hashem have to construct and organize the redemption in such a fashion, in such a manner? Totally unnecessary. God could blink. God could, God could do whatever God wants to do and the Jewish people will be transported, beam me up, they'll be out of there. Education process. Is, is there an education process? What was the education process? The good news is you don't even need the Mepharshim. God Himself in the Torah gives the answer to that question. Why did he do this with such pomp and circumstance? And maybe we'll get to it. But let's go back to what I want to study with you today. It's Perak Vav, chapter 6, verse Yud, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10, it appears on page 320, 321. It's where I believe we left off last year. And it is uh, a natural, as I find myself saying to you often, what do you notice is right there? The letter Pei which stands for psuchos, which means that there's a break in the line. Which again, it's the Christians who introduced the concept of the chapters, but the Jewish tradition always followed that we know when there's a break in the story or in the sections by the spacing of the way it appears in the Torah. So here we are, Pasuk Yud. So this is just after Moshe turns to the Jewish people and... Uh, God is, Moshe says, Lo Shemua, Moshe, the Jewish, Moshe tells them, I've got great news. We're out of there. And God made me these four promises, five promises. I'm going to take you out. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to bring you. All these promises. And what are the Jewish people? What's their reaction? What's their response? Pasuk tests. Moshe relayed all of these incredible promises to the Jewish people. Moshe, 
They didn't listen. They didn't listen to Moshe. Why didn't they listen? I mean, it's bizarre that they didn't listen. Imagine persons in dire circumstances. They have a terminal illness. The doctor comes and says, I have great news. I'm going to heal you. There's a solution. There's a cure. You're going to be okay. Everything's going to be great. Your house is underwater. They're foreclosing. You're about to lose your house. You're about to be evicted. You're about to be homeless. The bank calls you. I've got great news. It's all going to be okay. They changed the laws or we found the financing or somebody paid off your debt. I've got great news. It's all going to work out. Or you're out of money, you're unemployed, and someone's called, i got a job for you, it's great. I've got the shidduch for you, the doctor calls. She's pregnant. Whatever the case is, whatever the example is, I've got great news. Your personal redemption has arrived. Would we say, ah, oh, please doc, you know what, forget about it. I'm never getting better. She's never getting pregnant. I'm never getting out of this foreclosure. I'm never getting that job. I'm never finding out what, you know what, forget it. I can't hear, it's not happening, goodbye. Hang up on them. Could you imagine? It's bizarre. It's bizarre behavior. So the Jewish people didn't hear Moshe. Why? This is what Rabbi Dr. Danny Gordis spoke about this past Shabbos in our shul on Shabbos morning. It's the Pasuk before. Perak Vav, chapter 6, verse Tess. Verse Pasuk 9. So what does it mean? And I don't want to review. I think we talked about it last year. Kotsuruach Rashi understands means Ruach v'nishmasok tzara. They were out of breath. They were out of breath. You know why they didn't hear? Because they were exhausted. They were exhausted. Para was working them like dogs. And when you break someone's back, you also break their spirit. spirit. So they said, are you kidding? I don't have the energy to be redeemed. I don't have the energy to believe that I could be redeemed. I don't have the energy to have faith in redemption. I'm exhausted. I can't keep my eyes open. I can't catch my breath. Kotzeruach Rashi says means they were breathless. They were literally exhausted. But the Archaim HaKadosh has the best explanation. And we studied this last year. I don't want to really uh, review it too much. He says, Ruach here doesn't mean breath. Literally the capacity to breathe. Ruach means vision. It means vision. Kotzer, Milashon Katsar, means narrow. Ruach means vision. To have faith and optimism and hope means you have to have imagination. You have to have broad vision. You have to have the capacity to believe that things can be different. They can be a better time. They can improve. Circumstances can change. But they were, Paro had succeeded in breaking their back to the point that they had kotzer ruach. They had blinders on. They were so narrow, they couldn't imagine anything different. This is what we know. This is all that we know. This is all we will ever know. And when you come and give us a promise that it will change, I, I don't believe you. I can't believe you. And you know what that means? You know what that's similar to? I'll give you one other example. Somebody who's... This actually happened, believe it or not, recently. But somebody who's, who's out of shape. <coughs> Their health is so poor, they're probably clinically obese. And at the highest risk for everything we know, diabetes, heart disease, cholesterol, blood pressure, everything. And someone comes to them and says, I've got great news. We're going to go for a walk every single day together. And then from there... You're going to be able to go for a little jog. And you're going to cut back and you're going to change your eating habits. And then you're going to be a, I, I want to paint a picture for you. You can drop 80 pounds and you'll get off medicines and you'll have no health problems and your knees and your hips and your ankles won't hurt. It's unbelievable. And you know what the person looks at you? Because I did this last week. I went over to somebody yeah. who I'm worried about and I said to them, I'd like to go for a walk with you every day. Let's just go for a walk together. I'd like to go for a walk. And the person looked at me and said, 
No, I'm not interested. So I said, you're not interested? Why are you interested? I said, I'm not asking you to go to the gym and to work out and to get a trainer and to lift heavy weights and to run a marathon. I just want to go for a walk. Let's go for a walk. Why are you not interested? So you know what he said to me? It's not me. I said, it's not you. It's not you to be healthy. It's not you to be able to get on the ground and play with your grandchildren. It's not you to be able to have longevity and good health. But it was remarkable to me. And God bless the person's a wonderful person and I love them and I don't mean it to be judgmental or critical and you can't judge anyone until you stand in their shoes. But you know what that person was saying? Kotzeruach. I can't imagine things. It's not me. It's not me. I'm the guy who eats a lot and is pretty sedentary, who doesn't move much, doesn't exercise. And Okay, I'm that guy. I'm the obese guy. I'm the fat guy. That's me. Start doing all that? I can't even imagine that. I can't even picture a reality like that. That's not me. That's literally what he says. It's not me. That's Mikotzer Ruach. Jewish people are in Egypt enslaved. That's all that they know. It's all they've ever known and it's what they fear is all they ever will know. So when Moshe comes with a promise of hope, they say, it's not me. It's not me. I'm the slave in Egypt. Being free? <laughs> That's not me. That's where Moshe last leaves us. And that brings us to Pasuk Yud. So now that we're 20 minutes in, we can start our class. By the Be'er Shema Moshe Lemor, Hashem turns to Moshe Lemor saying, Bo daber aparo melech metzrayim vishalach es b'nei Yisrael me'artzo. Come, speak to Paro, the king of Egypt, and send the Jewish, telling him, instructing him, send the Jewish people, me'artzo, from his land. Me'artzo, from his land. Now first of all, what do you mean bo? Bo daber aparo. What should it say? Lech. God's talking to Moshe here. He's sending Moshe over there. So you don't say come. You say go. Unless, unless, unless you're going together. Unless you're going together. So all the Mephoshim harp on this in the beginning of next week's parasha, bo. But it could be asked and explained here also and earlier. When God, and this is such a critical message and lesson, when God's telling Moshe, He's not saying to him, Go. You're on your own, buddy. Good luck. Let me know how it goes. Go confront Paro. Go stand up to him. Tell me afterwards how it went. What He's telling Moshe, puts his arm around Moshe and He says, Bo, come. Let's go together. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. And I guess you're right. It's not what I thought of. But it's, I didn't say to that person, Go for a walk. I said, Let's go for a walk. If you're going to help somebody try to imagine a different future, you can't instruct them, you can't direct them, you can't command them. You have to bring them. You have to bring them to that new reality. You have to bring them to that new, that new existence. Moshe so, from an Egyptian home. He grew up as the Nochrit of the whole story of Nazareth. I mean, he's beginning right, to Right, right. So Hashem says to him, Bo, come, we're going together. Mm-hmm. Question number two. And here all the Mephoshim jump on it. Hashem Moshe... Lemor. Hashem says to Moshe, Lemor, saying. What do you mean saying? What do you mean saying? Why, why Lemor? What is Lemor? Everybody jumps on this. The Ibn Ezra writes, Hamayen, Hamayen, Bekra, Yira, Shahoras, Lemor, Mishalek, Lekamag, Vanim. If you're attentive to the, to, the, to the text, says the Ibn Ezra, you will notice, I'm sorry, I was reading the Avi Ezra. First look at the Ibn Ezra. 
I skipped the commentary, the Avi Ezer, which is the commentary on the Ibn Ezer writes. Hama'ayayn. He's commenting on the Ibn Ezer. First, the Ibn Ezer writes, Vaidaber, Lemor Lemoshe. The reason it's strange here is normally God says to Moshe, speak to Bnei Yisrael and say to them. Speak to them and say to them. So here it's That's how the Ibn Ezra is explaining it. God spoke to Moshe Lemor saying to Moshe the following. And God spoke to him saying to him the following. So the Avieza, this super commentary on the Ibn Ezra comments, Hamayim Bekrov, you are attentive to the text, you'll notice that the word Lemor comes in different contexts. Ayim Barashi Dvarim Vaomer Alechem Baisahi Lemor, Ayim Bemizrachisham. Ayim Barashi Bitchiz Vayikra, Meom Oed Lemor. Ayim Rashpam, and Parshashmos Vayitzav Paro Lechol Amo Lemor. You see Lemor used in different contexts, sometimes to Moshe to relate to others, sometimes to Moshe when God's relaying it directly to him. So what does Lemur mean? It means this is the beginning of the conversation. This is the beginning of what's being relayed. So by Daber Hashem Moshe, God spoke to Moshe is just setting the stage. God spoke to Moshe, I'm setting the stage. Now, Lemur, Lemoshe, He said to Moshe the following. This is where the conversation, the dialogue began. So that's how the Ibn Ezra is understanding the word Lemor. Whenever you see the word Lemor in the Torah, Lemor indicates the Vayidaber so-and-so or so-and-so. Or Vayomer. Or Tzav. Vayitzav. All of these different to say, to speak, to command. Those are setting the stage. But then the Lemor means, here's where the speech, where the, where the dialogue commenced. Here's where it began. That's the Ibn Ezra. The Ramban, Nachmanides, also is bothered by this. The Radak says Lemor is something different. Lemor is a sign indicating Lemor means that it should be shared with the Jewish people. What you're being told, you're being told Lemor to relay, to communicate to the Jewish people. So, Hashem tells Moshe, say such and such to the Jewish people. And here the Lemor is to Para. So, you have a fundamental debate. The Ibn Ezra understands the Lemor here as, Vaidab Hashem Moshe, Lemor le Moshe. God spoke to Moshe, sets the stage. Lemor saying to whom for the Ibn Ezra? To Moshe, the beginning of the conversation. For the Ramban, Vaidab Hashem Moshe, God spoke to Moshe, Lemor to say to whom? Le Paro. To Paro, yes, sir. Oh. Good. Why is it there at all? Why is it there at all? Vakasov, so let's keep reading. Vakasov, Sha'amar Emesh, Amar Elai Lemor, and any Baal and Nacham Befer Shazer. But you have a Pasuk in the end of Sefer Bracious with Lemor seems not to uh, fit into that. Description, namely that it means to relay it to the Jewish people or relay it to someone else. And furthermore, we have a number of times where it says God spoke to Moshe saying, speak to the Jewish people and say to them. So if saying meant say it to the Jewish people, then you have a total redundancy. So the Radak's formula or principle that Lemur means to repeat it to the Jewish people, to repeat to someone, 
doesn't the Ramban's not satisfied. Many, many, many examples where he uses the word lemor to say, even though subsequently, right afterwards, it'll tell you to say it and to whom. So lemor would then be superfluous. So what does it mean? So the Ramban gives an alternative. So we have the Ibn Ezra, we have the Ramban quotes the Radak, and now the Ramban. Lemor means a clarification of the issue. You know what Lemor means? It was said with utter clarity, forcefulness, explicitly, as blunt as it could. That's what Lemor means. I mean, sometimes you walk away from a conversation... I have this all the time. I have this all the time. Someone comes to me and says, so-and-so said such-and-such. I say, really? They, they, they said that? <laughs> well, they, they didn't use those words, but they basically said that. If you read between the lines, they said that. So, that person didn't really say that. The second person drew a conclusion, or projected onto them, or extrapolated, or maybe they were correct to read between the lines, but it wasn't said explicitly. Lemur means, Lemur means to be said explicitly, says the Ramban. Whenever you see the word Lemur, it means God didn't dance around the subject. He didn't hint, he didn't leave it between the lines, he wasn't avoiding it, he said it. And he said it absolutely clearly. Ba'amira Gemura, he ex- expressed it fully. Lo amira misupekes, not in a doubtful or hidden or cloaked manner. Velo baremes davar, and not with a hint. Ulekach, hold on one second, I'm sorry. Yas mitzeh bechol Torah, ki nevuas Moshe peal pei daber bo, velo bechidus. Velo ma anam arkein liYaakov, emash amar Hashem elai leimor. And when Lavan says to Yaakov, yesterday God said something to me, leimor, saying what he meant was baamira berura shelo azik lachem. God said it to me explicitly. He didn't hint, he didn't dance around. So, the Ramban's opinion. So again, the Ibn Ezra said Lemur means the beginning of the conversation. Lemur just means sets the stage. Lemur means, and here's what he said. You ready? Here's the actual script. That was the Ramban. That was the Ibn Ezra. The Radak says, no, no, no. Lemur means that what's being said now is intended to be repeated. It's intended to be communicated to someone else. Lemur, say it to someone else. In this case, it's Paro. In many cases, it's B'nai Yisrael. The Ramban does not like that explanation and gives a third his own. That Lemur means, every time you see Lemur in the Torah, it means an explicit communication, an unambiguous communication, a communication that was said without a hint, a communication that leaves no doubt. Oh, okay. So, well, that's kind of like what the Ibn Ezra was saying. The Lemur turns it into a quote. Right, so for the Ibn Ezra, Moshe just tells you they spoke. Lemur means, and here's the quote. Quote, this is what he said. Not just a narrative, but it's a quote. Right, not, not rephrasing it. <coughs> oh, the Orachayim we're going to read next. So the Orachayim says, Lemur. Omer lemor perish yomar elav ki yu amalo bo daber. 
Yeah, yeah. So, right. so the Rechaim explains the Lemur is, this is, sir, your question from earlier. For the Rechaim, Lemur means this is what you're to tell Paro. Tell Paro, God said to me, Bo daber al Paro, Melech Mitzrayim. In other words, and what does that communicate to Paro? Is Moshe there alone? No. You can't see him. God's right here with me because he invited me to come with him. It's not the opposite. It's not that I'm here telling you, Paro, let God's people go and God's here. God's here telling you to let him go and I'm with him. Because God said to me, Bo, come, Daber Aparo, let's go. So that's how the Yorachayim understands it. Okay, let's keep going. So we saw four different explanations of Lemor. Moshe then said back to God. Right? Lemor. So now you've got to figure out what's the Lemor. So for the Ibn Ezra it works. Because Lemor means it's a quote. For the Radak, it doesn't really work. Because who's God supposed to repeat it to? <laughs> right? Yeah. For the Ramban, it works. Because Lemur can mean Moshe said it clearly. He didn't dance around it. So, depending how you define Lemur, saying from the perspective of God towards Moshe, you may struggle to redefine it in the perspective of Moshe back towards God. So what does Moshe say towards God? Hain b'nei Yisrael lo shamu elai ve'ich yishmei paro v'ani he says, okay, you know, God, fine. I came with you this far. But look, I still have to object. I know, I know we've had this conversation a few times. I still have to put my foot down. Because God, I've got evidence now that it's not going to work. It's not going to fly. Because I went to the Jewish people and I told them, great news. You're coming out. Hundreds of years of slavery. You're going to be redeemed. They're over. Freedom, liberty, emancipation. And you know what they looked at me and said? Get lost. I'm not interested. You know what they looked at me and said, says Moshe? They said, it's not me. It's not me to be free. I'm a slave. It's not me. This is, I don't understand. The people for whom it was a promise of freedom said no. Paro, who I'm coming to threaten, he's going to listen to me. What, are you kidding me? Vani aras vasayim. And I have a speech impediment. It's impossible. I don't speak well. So let's see what's going on here. Rashi says, Oh, so let's see. Let's see. So Rashi says, This is one of ten a fortioris in the Torah. What is a kalvachomer? Kalvachomer, well, he's in yeshiva, you struggle to translate this. That's why you use the Latin from the Sansino Talmud, a fortiori. What is, uh, what is Kalvachomer? It means, if this, then certainly that. Right? It's a form of an argument. Kalvachomer. We say it every morning in Davening and Rabbi Shmuel. It's one of the ways of learning something. It's an extrapolation. You can uh, deduce something by using a Kalvachomer. If this, then that. So we have ten of them in the Torah, and this is one of them. What is the if this, then that? So look at the Sifsei Chachamim. Hold on one second. Look at the Sifsei Chachamim. Super commentary on Rashi. You might have thought to explain the following. 
the Jewish people didn't listen to me, and Paul's also not going to listen to me because I have a speech impediment. But you might have thought to explain that they're two independent, separate things. Jewish people don't listen to me because they have their reason. Namely, they have no vision. They can't see. They're exhausted. And Paro, he's not going to listen to me. Why? Because I have a speech impediment. But they're not related. That's what led Rashi to explain. No, these aren't two separate statements. They're intertwined. Moshe is saying to God, they're intertwined. Right? If the people didn't listen to me, then certainly Paro won't. And that's why Rashi explains first because the fact that Moshe knew he had a speech impediment was not the real reason why he was arguing that Paro wouldn't hear him. Moshe didn't think that Paro couldn't listen because of a speech impediment. He threw that in there gratuitously. We'll see Rashi in a moment why he threw that in there. His real argument was if the people whose very liberty I'm promising aren't hearing me, then the person whose liberty I'm going to steal from certainly won't. And this is the Kav says the Sevsechachamim. If the Jewish people, for whom it was a message of hope and optimism, it was a message of blessing, they should have welcomed it with open arms, and they didn't hear it. So, so Paro, for whom it's bad news, of course he's not going to listen to me. Of course he's not going to listen to me. So Vim Tomar, so now, we have, now that we've established what the Kavah was, asks the Sif Seichachamim a question. So if you've learned Talmud, if you learn Gemara, then you know the Gemara will often bring a Kavah and then they'll offer what they call a Pircha. A Pircha is a piercing, penetrating question, a logical intellectual gymnastics question to undo the Kavachomer. How can you undo the Kavachomer? Because you could prove that the assumptions that you're working off of aren't correct. If this, then that. Which means if this, the stricter thing is such and such, then that, the more lenient thing, certainly. Well, who said that's stricter and who said that's more lenient? So the way to undo the argument of a Kavachomer is to point out that the assumptions and presumptions that you're working with are not necessarily true. So I asked the Sif Seichachamim, who says, The Jewish people didn't listen. Why? They were exhausted. They didn't have any vision. Is Paro exhausted? No. So if there was a reason why the Jewish people didn't listen, and that reason doesn't apply to Paro, then you can't necessarily deduce that if they didn't listen, then certainly he won't. What do you mean? Their circumstances are different than his. They're exhausted physically, spiritually, emotionally. He's not. So you could ask a machavakavachomer, what do you mean if this, then that? But power doesn't have the same conditions the people have. The Yishlomer, and that's the answer, to Moshe lo haya yodeya shlo shamulo ruach. Moshe didn't know that the reason they didn't hear him is because of their exhaustion. You know Moshe thought? Like every rabbi who gives drushes and prepares and tries. He says, you know what, nobody's changing, nothing's different, nobody's listening. Twenty years went by in the rabbinate and I can't measure any effective change. So it must be I'm a poor communicator. It must be I'm a lousy speaker. It must be I'm not very compelling. Because I'm giving it my best shot. I speak and I speak and I speak and nothing changes. So Moshe feels rejected and dejected by the people. And he comes to the conclusion, why aren't they embracing my message? It, the message sells itself. 
Freedom, liberty, hope. Why aren't they listening? Must be because I'm such a poor speaker. I have a speech impediment, I have a stutter, I have a lisp. I can't communicate this effectively. That's why. Hold on one second. I'm sorry. One more second. That's why. He didn't realize that it was because of Kotzeruach. It was because they were exhausted. So for Moshe, the Kavachomer makes sense. Moshe was saying, if my speech impediment was such an obstacle that it couldn't deliver the message to a people who should welcome it, then certainly the speech impediment will be an obstacle to the individual who would never want to welcome this message. And that's what the Kavachomer, that's what's really going on. Says, but then you could ask, I don't want to take more time. You could read this if it's a it's a in-depth analysis of this Kavachomer. Yes. It's a repetition of what took place by the burning bush. It's similar. Right. It's a similar argument, except now he has empirical evidence. Because he tried telling the people. God says, No, they'll listen to you. What are you talking about? Come on, you're my man. You have to be the next real president. You've got to be the committee chair. What are you talking about? I need you. You're the only one who can do it. You have to do it. Do it for me. It'll work out. Everyone will listen. It'll be totally fine. The dinner will be a hit. No problem. Everyone will sign up. And, and you convince him. Now the person comes back and says, nobody's signing up. Nobody's giving money. Nobody, what, what, are, what are you doing? I told you I'm not cut out for this. So it's the same argument, but now Moshe's got empirical evidence. It's not working. Look at Rashi. Aral Fasayim. Moshe says, I'm a, what is Aral Fasayim? What does the word Aral remind you of? Orla. Orla. What's an Orla? Foreskin. What is a foreskin effectively? I don't mean to be graphic. It's a covering. It's an extra layer of skin. It's a flap of skin that's a covering. I was in the hospital at 8 o'clock this morning as part of our Beisden. We, we have a rabbinical court for conversion here in South Florida. And we're converting a 15-year-old boy wonderful 15 year old boy so he needed a circumcision so you don't do that you know he didn't sit in someone's lap <laughs> and, we, and we dip some gauze and wine and put it in his mouth and try to keep him from crying you know at 15 years old you don't do it that way it's uh, anesthesia and, uh, you're in the hospital in the OR so there we were the three rabbis one of our rabbis we had to hold up he almost passed out but it was uh, it got a little uh, got a little touchy but he, he made it he made it. So anyway, so it's, you know, the oral is being removed. The oral is being removed. And what is that? Atoms fasayim. V'chein kol lashan orla. So we have, by the way, the Torah uses the word orla in reference to three different body parts. The obvious one is to remove the orla, the foreskin, which is circumcision, a bris. Sec- second one is aras fasayim. What Moshe is arguing essentially is my lips, there's extra skin, they flap, they cut, they stutter, it's, it's, it's covered, my mouth is covered, or, oral, it's, it's, it's covered, it's concealed. I don't have the ability to get out what I want to say. I mean, think about how we describe somebody who, who stutters, who has trouble communicating, you, you want to, come on, spit it out, spit it out. Why can't they spit it out? Because it's blocked, it's covered. That's our Rasva sign, the lips are covered, they're blocked. They can't, they can't get it out. They can't find the opening to get it out. And the third example is, Orlas Halev, Torah talks about, which is the foreskin of the heart. In Sefer Dvarim, we have getting the bris, a remove, to remove the foreskin of the heart. But that means an extra layer of covering where a person doesn't allow themselves to feel. 
doesn't allow themselves to compassion, to feel, to have sensitivity, to be emotional, to feel spiritual. Their heart is covered. Their heart is covered. So, now that's different. That's to harden is different than to be covered. Is different. To harden means the heart itself is hardened. Covered means that there's a soft, beautiful heart. It's just being covered. It's being concealed by something. Right? So all three examples, that which is underneath is proper, but it's covered by something that needs to be revealed, removed, to reveal that which is underneath. That's what Rashi is saying. Atum svasayim, sorry, sealed lips. V'chein lashon arla. Ani yomer shu atum. oznam. Right? Yermio, you have the example of a foreskin over their ears. What does a foreskin over the ears mean? They couldn't hear. They weren't capable of hearing. Right? That might be a more comfortable place to have a bris milah. It would be a little less... Uh, a little less private. But the foreskin over the ear, foreskin over the lips, the foreskin over the heart, and of course the foreskin over the uh, male organ. Atuma mishmoa or lelev, atuma mehavin. Right? So the heart covered means to be... To be Closed off from understanding. Shesei gamata vehe arel chabakuk vehe atem mishechus kosaklala. Right, closed off from the drunkenness of the curse of, of uh, cup of curse. Orlas baso shehagid atum umechusa ba varlasem orlaso asula otem bechisoi iser sheyavde befne achilaso shalashon yelachem arelim atum umechusa muvdo milachlo. Right, so Rashi gives all of these examples, the ears, the lips, the heart, and so on, the concept of being concealed, covered, of being sealed, of not being open. So that's what Moshe is saying. I, I can't communicate. I can't get it out. I'm not able to get it out. Okay, so let's continue. Plus a Gid Gimel. Right, so it's, it seems like, what does that pay indicate, by the way, right there? There's a break in the section. There's a break in the section. So it sounds like the conversation ends kind of abruptly, right? Mm-hmm. God says to Moshe, "New, come, we're going down to Paro. And here's what you're going to tell him. That I told you, you're coming down to Paro and you're going to send out the people. And Moshe says, whoa, 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 whoa. The people didn't listen to me. There's no way he's going to listen to me. End of conversation. That's kind of an abrupt ending, isn't it? Yeah. Or maybe it continues. Hashem speaks to now Moshe and Aaron. Aaron has entered the scene. Command the Jewish people and Paro, the king of Egypt, to take Jewish people out of Egypt. He couldn't defeat Moshe on this argument. Moshe felt so insecure, so inadequate over his speech impediment that rather than try to convince him or compensate, he compliments. How? By sending him Aaron. Moshe, you're still the man. I need you to be there. But you're so worried about speaking, the speaking part? Aaron will do the speaking. Aaron will do the talking. And you need to command the Jewish people and Paro to, let, to, to come out. Now even that's funny. Why do you need to command the Jewish people? What do you mean by Yitzhavim? Command Paro, let my people go. But command the people, let my people go. What do you mean? What's the obvious answer? Kotzeruach. 
Because Moshe tried already once, gently telling them, Great news, guys. Great news. I'm here to take you out. And what'd they say? It's not me. It's not me. So now God tells Moshe, Moshe, you've just learned that you don't have one mission in Egypt. You have two missions. That your challenge to convince Paro will be paralleled by your challenge to convince the Jewish people themselves. Vayetzavim. Not only do you have to command Paro, let my people go, you have to command the people, let my people go. It would be like me going to this individual and shaking him up and saying, let my friend, the healthy one who wants longevity, who wants to play with his grandchildren, who wants to be here, who wants to take care of himself, let him go. Let him out. Let him free. If somebody is is so paralyzed and hijacked, by their narrowness in thinking, in vision, exhaustion, you have to shake them up and say, let them out, let them go. So that's what Rashi is saying. So Rashi, I'm sorry, Rashi says, not only do you have to command Paro, you have to equally command B'nai Yisrael. What's the command that Moshe and Aaron have to do to B'nai Yisrael? Says Rashi, be patient. Be patient with them. They're going to be difficult. You're going to have to absorb a lot of annoying pain. They're going to complain. They're going to be difficult. They're going to be obstinate. They're going to be stubborn. Nachas. Be gentle. Be gentle. <coughs> be patient. And be patient with them. The Sif Chachamim has a comment here also. Kashal Rashi. How did Rashi come to understand this? From the fact that it says, command the Jewish people, Rashi says that means, be gentle with them, have patience with them. Where did Rashi see this? So the Sifzid Chama says, what was bothering Rashi was, it says, So does that make a lot of sense? Command the Jewish people. You're saying to the Jewish people, I command you to let the Jewish people go. That doesn't make much sense. So it's on Lomar Vayitzavim Koya Moshe Biaron Lahanig Yisrael Benachas Veliz Belosam. It meant the Vayitzavim. The command was on Moshe and on Aaron to display great patience and display to be gentle in the way they relate to the Jewish people. Okay, look at the Sforno Rav Avadi Sforno Pasuk Yigimel Vayitzavim Mina Osam Lesarim Kemava Yismochas Yadav Alav Vayitzavehu. What does it mean by Yitzavim? It means it was right now that he deputized Moshe and Aaron. It was at this moment that God appointed Moshe and Aaron into official positions. When they come to Paro, he says, who are you? When they go to the front desk, you say, we have an appointment with Paro. Say, who are you? They're no longer just saying, oh, who are we? Moshe and Aaron. What they're saying now is, we are delegates of the Almighty. We are ambassadors of the Almighty. We are appointees of the Almighty Himself. Vayitzavim, mina osam l'sarim, says the Sforno. God appointed them as agents, as ambassadors, as emissaries to go to Paro. It was an official appointment. An official appointment. How does the Sforno understand Vayitzavim, el b'nei Yisrael? Right, we said Rashi had trouble understanding that because why would you command the Jewish people to let the Jewish people go? So we gave one explanation meant that they needed to be commanded because kotziruach, they were so exhausted. They too need to be commanded. Rashi understood it to mean you're not commanding them at all. It's a commandment to Moshe and Aaron to be more patient. The Svarno understands El B'nai Israel to mean 
al Bnei Yisrael. Not to the Jewish people, but about the Jewish people. So you're not commanding the Jewish people anything, you're commanding about the Jewish people. Paro Melech Mitzrayim. Look at the next Rashi. This is a very important Rashi, in my humble opinion, for us today in contemporary times. Tziva alav lachlok lo kavod bidivrayim. Zemid Rasha. Pshuto tziva mal dvar adibar Yisrael va shlichusov ve alparo. Udvar tziva mahu, and so on and so forth. What is Rashi saying? He says, when you're about to go down and address this individual, you know what you're going to call him? Paro Melech Mitzrayim. You're going to show him honor. You're going to show him honor. So I'll tell you something remarkable. Rashi says this actually a few times in the Torah. Rashi essentially saying is, that if in 1938 you could have a meeting with Adolf Hitler, you would refer to him in that meeting as the Honorable Adolf Hitler. That's how you would refer to him. If you can meet with Ahmadinejad, Yamach Shemovizikro tomorrow, you would say, Mr. President, what you're doing is deplorable, your behavior is abominable, you're so on and so forth. But you'd call him Mr. President. Why? So Rashi says elsewhere. Because the position itself is due respect, even when the individual who holds it doesn't deserve it. This is a very, very important lesson. And I'm not making a statement right now about any administration or leadership in America, but I'll say this. Whether it was when President Bush was president, or whether it was now, or whether it is now, people should disagree about policies. People should disagree about issues. But when we disparagingly refer to individuals who hold the highest chair, not only in office, but in the entire free world, and we disparagingly refer to them in the most... um, awful terms and name-calling and insults, we're not, we're doing a disservice to ourselves because of how we have distorted our sense of honor and dignity and respect for the position, for the office itself. Even if you feel an individual is undeserving of it, disagree with their policies, disagree with their positions. But when we, we undermine, I think... What's his name? Michael Moore? Who's the filmmaker? To me, when President Bush was president and he made a film about a sitting president, right, trying to make him the laughing stock. What was that movie he made? Fahrenheit 9-11, whatever it was called. 4-11, whatever it was called. He basically tried to make a a movie to make a sitting president look like a fool, a buffoon. You might say the president helped him, it didn't make it hard for him. Again, whatever your position is on any particular president. But there used to be a sense of awe and reverence and respect for the position that a sitting president, you wouldn't... Because you know what you end up doing? The whole country suffers when there's no respect for authority, when children are raised in an environment where they see adults have zero respect even for an office, for a position. Children don't have the sophistication to understand the difference between the position and the person. They just see you referring to someone in those terms. So, you know, again, I feel as strongly as many others do about some of the issues that are out there, but I think that we become undignified when we speak in, in, in such awful terms about a position. You remember there was a discussion actually that I think President Bush had started, I don't remember which president started a policy to never take his jacket off in the Oval Office. Reagan started it. President Obama came into office. He 
one of the first things he did is took off his jacket, threw it on the couch, and had a picture taken, and wanted, I think he was trying to communicate that he was there to get down to business, to get to work, and there was a whole discussion, you know, it's the Oval Office. So on the one, it's the Kodesh HaKadoshim Lahavdil of the American people. It's the Kodesh HaKadoshim. You know? I had the privilege twice of being in the White House. No one bothered giving us a tour, let alone even offering us a glass of water, but in our meetings. But I did sneak to get a peek and step into the Oval Office because if you're in the White House, you got to say, it felt, again, Lahavdil, Lahavdil, like, you know, you're walking into the Kodesh HaKadoshim Lahavdil. This is the Oval Office. So that's Rashi saying here. He's saying, this man, his people have caused you to suffer slavery, servitude, hundreds of years. They demanded the murder of every firstborn male. It's a holocaust. It's a genocide. It's what Ahmadinejad Yamaf Shemo wants. That's who this man is, Paro. And yet Rashi quotes, God says to Moshe, when you go down there, you know how you're going to refer to him? Paro Melech Mitzrayim. Mr. President. Mr. Mr. Prime Minister. Mr. President. Not because he deserves it, because you know what Hashem understands? In a world where we become so casual and flippant and lack awe and reverence for human authority, then we'll never possibly have respect for God and His authority. That it's a slippery slope and it begins down here. And if we become so undignified that we can't feel, we can no longer feel awe and reverence for human authority, then we'll never be able to feel it for God's authority. So God understands that if the human being is to maintain and preserve their capacity to recognize authority, respect for authority figures, then even when you disagree and reject with the person, you must maintain your respect for the office and for the position, the chair in which they sit. But I want to get back to the Orachayim HaKadosh and maybe end with this, even though we didn't get very far this week. Pasukid Gimel. I hinted, I alluded to this. Is there a conversation going on? God says to Moshe, "No, come with me. We're going down to Mitzrayim. Moshe turns to God and he says, No, I'm not going. Kavachomer, they didn't listen to me? There's no way he's going to listen to me. Next thing you know, God's talking to Moshe and Aaron and saying, Command the Jewish people, you're coming out of Egypt. What? Was that God's response to Moshe? Is this a new section? What's going on? The Orachayim wonders that. Tzorach ladas, ma diber Hashem lahem. Skip to the next paragraph because we don't have time. This is God's response to Moshe. It wasn't that there was an abrupt end to the conversation. Remember we asked? God says, no, you're coming. Moshe says, no, I'm not coming. Abrupt end. Next thing you know, God's telling Moshe and Aaron, okay, here's what you say. We said, what? What, what happened? Orchaim says, no, this was God's answer to Moshe. Moshe said, Kal if the people who should have welcomed the message couldn't hear it, then certainly the person who would never want to accept the message won't hear it. So God answers, Shalach Shivu Yisrael Shmo Dvarav, Vod Kilo, Kilotzad Paro, Ki Moshe Daber Yeshlo Giron Pchisus. God says, Vayitzavim, He says, I'm commanding you. I'm putting you in a position of authority. I'm deputizing you. You're an ambassador. You are charged with this mission. So when you say, how will He answer me? 
I, I have a speech impediment. So the Rechaim says, God was answering both tainas. On the fact that you say you have a speech impediment, don't worry, I'm sending Aaron. On the fact that you say, how could he possibly listen to me? The Jewish people don't listen to me. The answer is, he won't have a choice. Because you are representing me, you are commanding. He deputized them as king. He gave them an official capacity. So the Rechaim understands that the, what's going on here is a continuation of the conversation. It's a Kodesh Baruch It's God's response to Moshe's claim why Paro won't listen. We're going to have to stop here. If I would have continued, I'll leave you with a question. I'll leave you with a question to consider. All of a sudden, right here now, punked right here, Torah decides it's going to now chart Moshe and Aaron's lineage. Who are these Moshe and Aaron? Who are their parents and grandparents? Where did they come from? God's chosen them. He's just deputized them. He just made them his ambassadors to Egypt. He's going to go charge into the palace. Well, who are they? And because we're about to give their lineage, we also give a few other families lineage. Ruvain and Shimon and Levi. But here's what's interesting. It's in the context of giving their lineage that we learn, Amram as Amram took Aaron, they had Aaron, Moshe. First of all, what happened to Miriam? Amram That's how long he lived. So you know what? This is the first time we learn who Moshe's parents are. We take for granted that they're Yocheved and Amram. But in last week's Parsha, were they introduced to us as Yocheved and Amram? How were they introduced to us? Very anonymously. A man from the house of Levi took a woman from the house of Levi and they produced Moshe. We have no idea who they are. And only now are we told that they are Yocheved and Amram. And you can't help but wonder why. Why do we wait till Moshe is fully emerging? He's grown up in the palace. He had his episode in Midian. He marries. He comes back. God recruits him. He says no. Now he's finally emerging. He's on the brink of going down to Egypt. He's about to walk into the palace. And now and only now does the Torah feel comfortable revealing to us the identity of his parents who heretofore have been concealed. Why now? He should know where it comes from. I leave it for you as a question of Moshe Feinstein's. That's all. It's a beautiful answer. I leave that to you as a question for next time.